Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning for this morning for gathering us together again as family in the unity of the faith, Father. May we never become familiar with it, but recognize it for what it truly is. It's by your grace, something motivated by eternal love even. Why? To bring glory to you. Let us not forget these things, Father. Thank you for humbling us. Thank you for continuing to teach us what true humility looks like even, so that we are not ensnared by the devices of the evil one. Father, thank you for the completed canon of Scripture and the convicting ministry of the Spirit upon it. Thank you for imparting it to us on days like this morning. Thank you for the spiritual gifts that function in this church so that a day like this can happen to your glory, Father. Thank you for so many things, including our health, things that we become familiar with. We are so very grateful for the simplicity and purity and the opportunity to devote ourselves to your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We just pray for those that may be missing that point, Father, that may be still lost or confused or estranged from you. We just pray that we have the strength to persevere, the strength to evangelize, the strength to stand in the face of adversity to do so. May we always bring our own hearts back to the cross and present the gospel that affords others this same blessed opportunity. Therefore, we are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on that cross to cancel out that debt. For you know that we are sinners and we need a Savior. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message title, hold on a second. Give me one second. My computer keeps going to sleep. <clears throat> this morning's message title, though, is Why Are the Apostles So Encouraging? Part 5 of the Introduction. Give me one second. going to have to live with it. I'll share the point I began with on Thursday as it seems to be germane to our consideration of the apostles up here on the board. This was the point that I began with on Thursday. You're going to begin to see a lot of recurring themes in our study, which makes a whole lot of sense because we are studying the apostles um, as a prelude as a lead-in into the parables. We've been noting this transition that took place between uh, the propositional form of Jesus' teaching ministry to this parable form. Uh, and we've noted the sort of chasm between the two as the blasphemy of the Spirit, that, that sort of infamous day where Jesus said, enough's enough, 
Uh, I came to you first. You've rejected me. This consummation of your rejection has been completed. So be it. I'm going to turn my attention to training up, beginning with 12 chosen apostles to take this gospel of mine out to the world. Uh, And so we've been noting this sort of transitory thing between the propositional and the parable format of Jesus' teaching ministry. But before we get into that, um, and some of the things that get precipitated out of thinking like this, thinking about the example of the apostles, thinking about how backwards they would have seemed, what, what kind of choices were they made by the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? It would have seemed so backwards in that time in that context, if you would. And that gets us thinking, hopefully, um, about our own lives, that everything is backwards, even today, and upside down. The things that are esteemed by the world uh, ought not to be esteemed by the world. The things that are esteemed by God aren't esteemed by the world, and they ought to be. So everything's backwards and upside down. Think of it this way. The things that the world esteems the most are often the same things that are potential handicaps. Now, I said potential on purpose because I don't want you to make some kind of a kooky doctrine that if you're intellectual or athletic or beautiful or powerful in some way, shape, or form, that you're somehow handicapped. That's not true. But there certainly is a potential there. And it seems the more you have of each one of these things, because of the nature of the world, esteeming them the way it does, the greater the speed bump, the greater the handicap, the potential of the handicap could be. So the things that the world esteems the most are often the same things that are potential handicaps in the spiritual life. For example, intellect, athleticism, beauty, strength, power, business acumen, shrewdness, etc., etc. Go to... 1 Corinthians 125, 1 Corinthians 125. And so I've just been giving this a lot of thought uh, on your behalf. Uh, that's part of my job, remember, is just to bring th- things to the forefront of our minds, thoughts, um, light, if you would, so that all of you are able to ponder similar things to grow as a result. 1 Corinthians 125 says it very clearly, this is Paul writing, of course, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Uh, think about that. For the very least of God, if there is such a thing, is much wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, how? Boast in the Lord. Now that's completely backwards. Especially in the United States. 
Everything's about self. Everything. People even do things for themselves, for others, for themselves. So let him who boasts up here on the board, the contrast between humility and arrogance is easy to identify. One only need ask who they are boasting in. Who they are boasting in. If credit is funneled away from the Lord God, the giver of all things good, then it's arrogance. Then it's arrogance. This is how you understand whether or not you're boasting in something good or not, in the Lord. Again, the contrast between humility and arrogance is easy to identify. One only need ask who they are boasting in. If credit is funneled away from the Lord God, the giver of all things good, then it is arrogance. Let me give you a little more theological or theological bent here on let him who boasts. On the supreme judicial scale of God, righteousness is the only thing with any mass to it. Just think about that for a second. Righteousness is the only thing with any mass to it. God's not looking, in other words, God's not looking for intellect and power and shrewdness and beauty and all the things that this world seems to put up on a pedestal. They have no real weight, do you see? Righteousness does. Righteousness does. And if you get self-righteous because of any one of those things, those things are as heavy as air on the scales of the Lord. So on the supreme judicial scale of God, righteousness is the only thing with any mass to it. Man is incapable of bestowing righteousness to himself. It is a gift from God, both through imputation at salvation and impartation during sanctification. That means any good work that you do is imparted to you by God. In all cases, God adds righteousness to his own scales on man's behalf. Now, there might be, a, just to sort of carry this out, there might be a weight on the scale with your name on it, but God's the one who gave you that righteousness that has any weight. God's the one who assigned it to your account. That's how we have to think. In all cases, God adds righteousness to His own scales on man's behalf. Proverbs 16, 8-11. We'll get there in a moment. Glory in excelsis Deo. Glory to God in the highest. Go to Proverbs 16, 8. We have to think this way. And this is the example that is leading us back to the apostles proper here in a moment. But what we realize is that the apostles stood as an example, uh, one example, especially the first 12, that you didn't have to come to the table with all kinds of self-righteousness, things to boast about on your own. And then he pads that with Paul, who had an awful lot to boast about, all kinds of things that were boastworthy by world standards, but that didn't matter either. And so he sort of bookends us in the Bible, which is a wonderful work. Look at Proverbs 16.8, though, on the theology of God's weight and scales. Verse 8, Proverbs 16.8, Better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. A divine decision is in the lips of the king. His mouth should not err in judgment. 
A just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are His concern. A just balance and scales belongs to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are His concern. Now, where am I going with this introduction this morning? Well, for starters up here on the board, regarding the apostles, we may each be encouraged uniquely by the apostles. Each one of them were justified, made righteous by grace through faith, not as a result of intellect or any other works on their own. That's Romans 3, 21 to 31, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Again, we may each be encouraged uniquely by the apostles. Why? Because everyone in here has something that the world esteems. Something about them that if you let it, if you took the temptation, if you took the bait, you would form a bit of self-righteousness as a result of it. And you would try to put that self-righteousness on God's scales. But we just read in Proverbs that God owns the scales and the weights. So if He's not giving us the righteousness that we're proposing we put on the scales to tip it in our favor, then it's air. It's no good. It's garbage. So we might be encouraged by this, by the, ex the examples of the apostles, because they, by world standards, showed up with very little. But here's the thing. The beautiful work of God, by grace, is that each one of them were justified, made righteous by grace through faith, not as a result of intellect or any works of their own. Romans 3, 21 to 31, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Paul, on the other hand, though faced with a different evangelical challenge, being the so-called apostle to the Gentiles, that's from Romans eleven thirteen, spoke to the dynamic that existed between the Jews and Gentiles, even during the ministries of the original twelve, Go to Romans 3.21. Romans 3.21. We're just going to amplify the point on the board. Romans 3.21. And I hope you see with the point the Spirit's starting off this morning with. Part of the encouragement that He's been giving us regarding the apostles is that it doesn't matter, in other words, what you show up with. The first 12 prove one side of the equation. Paul proves another. It doesn't matter what you show up with. It matters, it's a matter of the heart. Romans 3.21 But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, and even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. The righteousness of God through what? Through faith in Jesus Christ, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace. You see? Being justified be, means being made righteous. And how will you receive any righteousness as a gift by His grace? So self-righteousness has no weight whatsoever, no mass to propose that we put on God's scales. And that's one of the magnificent examples of the apostles, as they showed up uh, without any self-righteousness to 
put on the scales, without anything uh, that the world would esteem to put on those scales, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, in other words, not only does he do, not only does he own the scale, the balance, the weights, but he's also the one who does all the work. He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The only righteousness that has any mass, again, is that which is given by God by grace. So look at verse 27. Paul says it very clearly. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by a law of what? Faith. And that echoes of 1 Corinthians 1.31. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. By faith. Verse 28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Excuse me. Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. In other words, it doesn't even matter. Jew, Gentile. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. You see, there's only one gospel. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Again, the point we're amplifying is up here on the board. We may each be encouraged uniquely by the apostles. Each one of them were justified, made righteous by grace through faith, not as a result of intellect or any works of their own. Romans 3, 21 and 31. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You're pretty comfortable with that, I'm sure. Paul goes on to amplify the point on the board by referring to the father of Jews, Abraham himself. Look at verse 4.1. Verse 4.1, right after that. After he makes that sort of dissertation on being made righteous by faith, being justified by faith, he says, here's your example. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So then what does that mean? That means God has to account righteousness to you. God has to give it to you. That's the only righteousness that ever has any weight, any mass on his scales. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So up here on the board, righteousness credited to one's account. As was the case with Abraham in Romans 4.3, God gives grace, righteousness, in view to the humble, those who believe him. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees? He says, if you don't believe that I am he, 
you will die in your sins. That's what he said. You don't believe me. So you don't believe the Father. You don't believe either of us. You believe you are the, you are the sons and daughters, if you would, of the Father or the God of this world. The Father of lies. God gives grace, righteousness even, to the humble, which is really those who believe Him. You don't have to possess natural abilities. Nothing to boast about to earn favor with God. The apostles prove this. In my experience in the ministry, um, people with natural abilities are often not only the hardest to evangelize, but the, the hardest to teach. Why? That's arrogance. Natural abilities. Like I said, you have this, the greater the natural ability, the, the greater the potential seems to be for stumbling, for getting cockeyed, if you would. The apostles proved this. Now, as we continue with our series, I want you to remember the big picture of our curriculum. In other words, I want you to remember the context of our studies regarding the apostles. First, we know that Jesus was sent to the Jews, his own people. However, as we've looked at in Scripture this past week, his own did not receive him. So the context, again, of Jesus' ministry during this transitory period was that he first went propositionally, if you would, as a teacher to the Jews, his own, but his own did not receive him. God promised the Jews a Messiah. He sent his own son, Jesus Christ. This man clearly introduced himself through word and deed, and they rejected him. Once their rejection was consummated, Jesus' teaching changed from propositional to parable. His entire format changed. And we've been using this as sort of a pattern or a model, even in our own church. We spent a year and a half on the gospel proper in its propositional form. And now we're going to look at the parables. But what the Spirit's been saying is, don't look at the parables yet. Wait until you understand the full context of what was going on at that time when he was trying to educate the twelve that would go out after he was gone. He said, I came to seek and to save. I need somebody else to understand these things. And I need you also to understand what you're going to run up against. You're going to run up against all kinds of, as he would say, soils, all kinds of opposition. And I want you to understand that I don't want you to be discouraged. Lo, I will be with you. I will send the helper even. I don't want you to be discouraged, but I'm going to train you up. And he did that uh, in a special way through the parables. And so he wants to now give us this wonderful blessing of studying parables. But before we do, we need the context of the apostles who received those parables. The second critical piece of context is that Jesus' ministry was simple yet profound as described by himself up here on the board, Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man has come, this is him speaking, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's what he came to do. 
to seek and to save. So, simply stated, Jesus came to spread the good news about salvation. The context, the language, um, the circumstances, the audience, those things were dynamic based on the time and element, if you would, of his ministry, which makes total sense. I mean, you could walk out here today, see someone on the sidewalk that you're really good friends with, talk about Jesus with them. Maybe they're not saved. Maybe they're open. Who knows? And then go to the mall and try to evangelize a stranger very differently. Maybe they're standing up for the Jehovah's out there with a table or something. You need to come at a different angle. Your language might be different then, right? Well, then that's exactly how we have to look at contextual issues with the Lord and the gospel. So simply stated, Jesus came to spread the good news about salvation. So you would think, obviously, if he's going to leave, what's he going to train those that are following him? To spread the good news about what? Salvation. It's that simple, folks. That's the whole point. As I taught you a while back, evangelism varies from person to people to person and people. In other words, it depends on the audience. It depends on the context. As context dictates how an evangelist goes about sowing the seed of the gospel. All you have to do is read the book of Acts. And you've had a wonderful opportunity, all of you. I know all of you haven't taken it for other for reasons. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes you just don't want to. The Bible studies, that's what we've been studying now for, what, I don't know, two years probably? Good solid two years in the Bible study, maybe more. All you have to do is read the book of Acts to establish that fact firmly in your souls. That the context was constantly changing, but the gospel never did. And when the context changes, the conversation changes which is perfectly fine. But do not take a conversation, make a case study out of it, and then make that a doctrine. We'll get to that in a moment. So another piece of context worth remembering is that the Jews whom Jesus was first sent to evangelize had cultural and religious expectations regarding the Messiah. Certain expectations. Have you ever dealt with, have you ever tried to evangelize somebody who had certain expectations about God? about what it means to be saved? I have. That seems to be the biggest problem of all. Well, don't tell me who God is. I already have my own conception of God, you see. Don't tell me how I'm supposed to feel about God. I already know God. Are you sure you know God? Because the, the God you're describing seems very different than the God in this book. The Jesus you're looking for is another Jesus. You're looking for another Savior. You've defined God. You've defined what you think you need saving from you don't have the truth. It's the truth that sets you free. So I think we've all been there. We've all come up against expectations when we evangelize. Is that fair to say? Well, guess who had expectations? Those during Jesus' time. They were looking for a Messiah. They wanted entrance into what the Bible calls the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And they wanted a ruler. They wanted a king. That was their expectation. So can you imagine what kind of um, language Jesus would have used with people that had that expectation? He would often talk about the kingdom of heaven. What was his first statement in his public ministry? Repent. What's at hand? The kingdom of heaven. 
That'll get their attention. If all you're focused on, if your entire religious practice is focused on the kingdom of heaven and entrance into it someday through the Messiah, who's going to lead you there, who's going to rule you there, then guess what? When the, when the guy shows up and says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's going to get your attention. Is that fair? Yeah, that's called context. Does it change the gospel? Not at all. Didn't we just read that in Romans 3? It doesn't change the gospel. Jew, Gentile, it's all righteousness by faith. Abraham believed and it was right. So it's not about, and that was before the law, so up here on the board, I don't want to digress. There we go. The kingdom of heaven, just as a side note, by the way, I want to clear the air on this. There's no difference or special, quote, hidden meaning between the kingdom of heaven, which is the way Matthew wrote it in Matthew, the book of Matthew, and the kingdom of God, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Epistles. Other than Matthew seemed more sensitive to the use of the word God. It would have been more taboo to Matthew's Jewish audience, in other words. Sound contextual? It should. But that's it. So don't go getting crazy, thinking there's, oh, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, and this is the kingdom of God, and they're different. They're not different. They're the same. So the only difference is other than Matthew seemed more sensitive to the use of the word God as he addressed the Jewish audience. So just to put a stick in the mud, I want to get you thinking the right way about the context of Jesus' ministry. After all, he is the one that was that chose and then trained up the apostles, right? He was the one who left afterwards. He was the same person who said, uh, go evangelize the nations, and I'll be with you. And so will my helper. So it understands, well, <laughs> a person's going to train up those that follow him based on his own ministry. Is that fair? Okay. The context of Jesus' ministry. He was sent to the Jews first, this we know. He came to seek and to save, this we know. He addressed his audience in language they would understand. And that would resonate with them, this we know. And then he trained his successors, the apostles, to do the same. Sounds like a perfect training plan. Does it sound overly difficult? Not really. Not really. But that was the context of his ministry. At the so-called consummation of Jewish rejection, Jesus' teaching ministry changed. And just as a side note, the gospel did not change. Uh, this is something that's floating around in the churches now that's driving me bananas. Uh, it's not... Paul's gospel, Jesus' gospel, the Old Testament gospel. There's one gospel. There might be a gospel context worth talking about. I'll agree with that. But the gospel has never changed. So the gospel did not somehow change just because he went from propositional to parable form, as some errant teachers seem to be teaching today. Go to Matthew 21, uh, 12, 31. Matthew 12, 31. It sounds obvious to say something like that, but folks, I'm telling you right now, there's a lot of people out there that are confused about the gospel. Really confused. And they're actually pretty intelligent people. Quote, unquote. Matthew 12, 31. I'm going to go through this quickly because this is review. But this is part of our context. This is the chasm, so to speak. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but... 
Blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Well, what's that all about? Up here on the board. The Pharisees knew who Jesus was, knowing he was sent from their God, John eleven forty eight, 48, Acts 4, 16, which means they'd have to call the Spirit who convicted them of who he was a liar. In other words, they were basically saying, you're a liar to the convicting ministry of the Spirit. And that's blasphemy of the Spirit. We see their heart in John eleven forty eight 48, appear on the board. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That was their heart. Jesus saw it, said enough's enough. Let's look at this other passage now listed on the board, this Acts 4 passage. And as we do so, let's keep in mind the context of Jesus' ministry. Okay, Keep in mind the context of his ministry, even though we're well into Acts. Jesus is gone at this point. But keep in mind the context of Jesus' ministry and that we'll be seeing the good fruit of it through Peter shortly after his first recorded sermon, which was in Acts 2. We're going to Acts 4. But remember, Peter was the first generation of trained-up disciples to go what? Preach the gospel. To go what? Carry on this Ministry of seeking and saving. The verse in view is Acts 4.16, but we're going to grab a little extra context leading up to that verse for the sake of tying some of this all together. Uh, go to Acts 4.8 instead, a little bit earlier on. Acts 4.8. So Peter's a bit on a roll. If you read 2 to 8 or 2 to 4 today, on your own, you'd see that Peter was sort of on a roll, he started giving sermons. And uh, if you know anything about his Lord, who he represented, you can see full color, the ministry of Christ even. Acts 4.8, just continued through another person, the apostle. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, remember, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, so said Scripture. So that Spirit's never going to convict Peter to teach some other gospel. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, but there was context, you see. Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, they performed miracles, remember, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. This obviously echoes of Jesus' own words, I came to seek and save. Verse 13, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter, and John, and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Up here on the board, I want to give you a little bit on that. Uneducated and untrained. This was human viewpoint, for these men were obviously much better trained than anyone who was judging them. That's, that's amazing, right? This 
was human viewpoint, for these men were obviously much better trained than anyone who judged them. What confounded the Jewish leaders was that the apostles' message was simple yet bold, the antithesis of their own. Their own was very complicated, and they wanted you to believe it was bold, but it was full of cracks, you see. Anybody who's inherently insecure but is arrogant tends to have a, a big old facade. But it, see, it's a very thin, fragile veneer. That's one of the ways you can tell somebody who's all talk and all puff, and they rear up like this, and all they're really showing is that they're insecure and weak. And that's what bothered them, is here these simpletons, right? These uneducated people who had all the boldness, who were filled with the Spirit, nonetheless, which is true power from heaven, which was the antithesis of them. They were complicated. They had people in bondage through intellect, through rationalism, through human means, and they were esteemed as a result. But here are these apostle guys, these fishermen, these uneducated, untrained men, and it unnerved them, it unhinged them to the core. Why? Because they had a different message. They had the same simple, powerful, eternal message of the gospel that Jesus Christ had. And guess what? They knew it. They knew it. So they had martyred all of them except John. Spoiler alert. Right? What confounded the Jewish leaders was that the apostles' message was simple yet bold. The antithesis of their own. This unnerved them to the core, just like a believer today whose confidence and conviction unnerves arrogant Christians around them. You see, I was thinking about this. Well, what about religion today? What does it look like? Pure and undefiled religion, as James says it in 127, has always been offensive to false religion. It's too simple. It's too gracious. It's too loving for those trying to cling to the throes of creature credit. I'm telling you right now, I could fill these seats tomorrow. You ready for this? All right, I would never have to, what was it, 340? I would never have to ever ask for another dollar. You want to know how? All I have to do is start selling stuff. Why? For some, I know the reason. People like to pay for stuff. Why? Because they don't want to owe anybody anything. Where the heck does that come? That's not grace at all. No, it's not. That's creature credit. You want to expand a ministry? Start selling stuff. I bet you if I charged at the door, we'd start getting people that we never saw ever. They'd be like, what's going on in there? Three bucks, I'm in. I want in. Right? What was the name? Was it Cro not Cross the Bridge? What was the name of that thing they did? The 99 tent. Does anybody remember that? A few of you? For those of you who don't, right? It's this huge tent that they set up at the Swansea Mall. I mean, it's a massive tent, right? And it was, I'm not, I'll, I'll cut to the chase. It basically was to spread the gospel, to spread the good news. Um, but when they first opened it, out of grace-oriented thinking, they didn't charge anything. And they were barely making it. Then they decided, let's charge three bucks. 
What? You think about that. I'm serious. You think about that. People don't like grace. That's what it comes down to. People do not like grace. So when they see a gospel that's simple and gracious and loving, it offends them. It's, a, it's literally offensive to them. But pure and undefiled religion has always been offensive to false religion. It's too simple. It's too gracious. It's too loving for those trying to cling to the throes of creature credit, which is man's scales instead of God's. Who owns the scales? God does. False religion proposes that self-righteousness bear some mass on God's scales and is terribly offended when it doesn't. It says, oh yeah, yeah, you know, it's like, oh, and the scale goes like this. Nothing. Why? Because it's God's scale. Your self-righteousness is worthless. Yeah, but I'm, it's, it's really heavy to me. I don't get it. That's called bondage. Let it go. That's why miserable people, people that can't get out of their own way, people that wake up in the morning and are miserable, they're just holding something they shouldn't hold. I wrote a blog on this. Probably trying to control something they shouldn't control. And so they're constantly bickering with people and arguing with good people and weighing people down. Sounds like the Pharisees, doesn't it? Anybody that's wrought and stuck in creature credit tends to spread the wealth a little bit, don't they? Here, hold this for a second. I'm miserable, you be miserable. I'm miserable, you be miserable. And they, ca- they cause this wake through their life, and it's pathetic, and it's weak, and it's ugly. And Christ is just sitting there saying, why don't you understand grace yet? Why don't you understand grace? Nope. Clinging to my religion. And I've taught you this. Everybody in here has some religion that they're still clinging to. So don't be pointing at the Pharisees. Oh, those Pharisees, they're so bad. No, everyone in here has a religion, or plural, religions that they're clinging to. False religion proposes that self-righteousness bears some mass on God's scales, and then it's terribly offended when it doesn't. But this is the point. Proverbs 16:11, "A just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are His concern." Do you want to know what true religion looks like? Jesus' brother wrote of it. Go to James 1:27. Go to James 1:27. You want to know what this looks like? And don't think that this is the only thing. You have to look, look, when you're reading your Bible, you have to read for context, but you also have to, like I said earlier, and we're going to get to this more formally in a bit, you can't make case, you can't take a case study and make it a doctrine. So don't, re, don't reverse engineer this thing and say, oh my word, if I'm not visiting orphans and widows, I don't have any pure religion at all. Okay, when's the last time anybody in here visited orphans and widows? No, I'm serious. Anybody? You're like, maybe I have one of them. That was like a year ago. Maybe, maybe I got lucky it was last week. Woo-hoo. Right? Orphans and widows? So don't reverse engineer and then make doctrines out of what I call case studies. James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Yeah, that's wonderful. In other words, where's your heart? 
Where's your heart? Is it with people in need? Or is it with your so-called needs? That's all he's saying. That's what pure, undefiled religion looks like. Keep oneself unstained by the world. I don't know what that means for you. I mean, I know generically. But I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what your temptations are uh, day to day. I can imagine by the look of you. I can only imagine. I mean, I, I, you know, it's no different. I look in the mirror and I'm like, ooh. Do you know of any Christians that have said to you, ah, that's not what spiritually concerned people do. That's what legalistic people do. In other words, let's just shut ourselves in our homes. We'll go to church once in a while. But we're going to shut ourselves in our homes and our little lives. And then that's it. And any concern whatsoever for orphans and widows and people in distress is legalistic. Oh, oh no, no, no. God will make it known. So what you're expecting is you're going to go back to your little life and God's going to kick doors open every day of your life. And that's what's going to motivate you to go out. And if some poor orphan who's, God knows, maybe even homeless, or some poor widow who's shackled up by snow and cold and no heat in her home, how's she going to kick your door in? Seriously. How's she going to come tell you she's in distress? Seriously. This is what he's saying. Where's your heart? That's easy. But you see, that's too simple and too convicting, isn't it? It's much easier to get more intellectual and more ambiguous. Well, you see, well, you see this over here and this doctrine right here, this one over here and the doctrine of privacy and the doctrine of this and the doctrine of that. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm going to hide out over here in the land of complexity. Me and my self-righteousness. You know, those kinds of discussions couldn't be any further from the truth, honestly. And I speak humbly from personal experience. I want to share with you some thoughts from, um, some, some of you know this individual and love him, J. Vernon McGee, on James 1.27. This is what he had to say. Christians should be getting out where the people are. And he's not talking about church. Where the people are. I feel there is a grave danger of having a religion of the sanctuary, but not a religion of the street. We need a religion of the street also. We should be in contact with the world in a personal way, with tenderness and kindness and helpfulness. Pastor McGee goes on to recite a story about a little boy whose mother had died. His father, this is him, his father was a poor man, but he worked and tried to raise the little fellow. There was a wealthy couple, relatives who became interested in the boy. They said to the father, you are not able to give the boy everything in life. We are wealthy. We can give him everything. 
So the father went to the little boy to talk to him about going to live with these folks. He said to the little fellow, they'll give you a bicycle, give you toys, and give you wonderful gifts at Christmas. And they will take you on trips. They will do things for you that I can't do for you. The little boy said, I don't want to go. And the father said, why? And the little boy said, they can't give me you. That's what the little boy wanted. He wanted his father. There are a lot of people out yonder. Obviously, he was a southern man. There are a lot of people out yonder who want that personal contact. Some of you are like, not really, I don't see it. Yeah, that's because you're holed up in your house. That's why. You're holed up in your little life. You're too self-absorbed, too self-righteous, too busy putting your own weights on God's scales and pretending they have some mass. And it's all a big game. It's all a big game. Why? So that you don't, your little life isn't disrupted. When Jesus Christ said, there's no greater love than this, than what? One lay down his life for others. I know. Isn't that just so convicting? Isn't it? But it's so simple, isn't it? I know. The simple ones are the most convicting ones. Because there's no um, slipping out of it. There's no slipping the knot. When it's that simple... There's no lawyering. Who is an attorney? Satan. When it's that simple, there's no getting out of it. There's no, there's no lawyering your way out. Well, does it say? But, but, but. There's no getting out of it. And that's exactly where the Lord wants you. There are a lot of people out yonder who want that personal contact. My friend, you can bring a Christian contact to these people with sweetness and love and consideration and kindness. All right, let's take these thoughts back to where we just were. Go to Acts 4.13. Acts 4.13. simple things. There's no slipping out of them. Acts 4.13 You see, if you make things complicated, you can gain control over them. Acts 4.13 Oh, you think you can, which is... Oh, by the way, control is an illusion. I'm saying. Verse 13 Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that They were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Again, up here on the board, this is where we started on that little side note. Uneducated, untrained, this was human viewpoint, for these men were obviously much better trained than anyone who judged them. What confounded the Jewish leaders was that the apostles' message was simple, yet bold, the antithesis of their own. And that's a wonderful piece of encouragement for all of us, which means that our message, how about this? 
you know, J. Vernon McGee is also the same guy who said, your actions speak so loud, I don't hear a word you're saying. How about our message? How about us? We are messengers. We are living witnesses. We are a testimony, at least we're supposed to be, to God's grace. How about we stand simply and bold, simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ, simply and bold in Christ Jesus. And let us confound the intellects, including the ones who have the tag above their church or on their their little cards, Christian. I failed to see a lot of Christ in most Christians. I know that sounds dire. I'm not trying to be that way on a Sunday morning, but the facts are the facts. I'm also not a liar. Let me state this more as a matter of principle up here on the board. What's the problem? Boldness in uneducated men unnerves the self-righteous because it debilitates the very basis of their self-esteem. A person whose self-esteem is tied to Christ is infinitely more powerful than one whose self-esteem is tied to self. Humility leaves arrogance speechless. Every time. Humility leaves arrogance speechless. So boldness in uneducated men unnerves the self-righteous because it debilitates the very basis of their self-esteem. A person whose self-esteem is tied to Christ is infinitely more powerful than one whose self-esteem is tied to self. Humility leaves arrogance speechless. Look at verse 14 again. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had what? Nothing to say in reply. Humility leaves arrogance speechless. They had nothing to say. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. They knew. <laughs> they knew. But so that it will not spread any further among the people. What? Let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about that which, about what we have seen and heard. Now this takes us to another um, piece of context that we should learn from, because that's what we're doing here. Why are the apostles so encouraging? Well, if we just observe their lives, we see an awful lot. What did they just say so boldly, simply and boldly? What we have seen and heard. Notice that the apostles' confidence pivoted on their experiences, not just what Jesus taught them verbally, but what he taught them through his example. You may not realize it, but they were uh, on OJT. That's what industry used to call certain things, like on-the-job training. He trained them, and he kind of like pushed them out a little bit. You ever see, a, um, I don't know, a, like a fawn, you know, it was just born? The, the mother will kind of like push it a little bit, and that thing will be like, you know, be wiggling with his legs all over the place, all gangly, you know what I mean? That's kind of like what it was. 
He said, okay, I just gave birth to a new ministry, but you're not ready yet, so I'm going to train you up a little bit. And he would push them out, and they would come back exhausted and be like, what's up? He's like, you so little faith. He would push them out, and they would come back. And he'd push them out a little further, and they'd come back. And eventually, he pushed them out and then ascended to heaven and said, you're on your own. But you see this sort of experience going on. For some of you, you've been through it. I've been through it as a pastor. For some of you, you've been experiencing it. God's like nudging you out. Whereas like even two, three years ago, you'd be like, no way. You were the person that was holed up in the house in your little life, right? No way. Now you're out. I think of Ann. Ann, you want to stand up and do a buck? No. Ann's like, don't you call on me ever again. She's so shy. But I think of Ann a lot. I mean, this is a woman who's really shy. Yet she's out and about. She's got a grace gift bag ministry. She's out there with strangers. I'm getting reports back. They're kind of creepy. I'm like, Ann, what are we doing out here? I'm like, what's in those bags? Right? I just put a little bit for prosperity, you know. But, just kidding. Right? but I see that happening. You don't think I see that happening? It's beautiful. It's wonderful. I can't. That's not my work, obviously. That's the Spirit's work. That's the good that's the good word working in an individual who's now motivated to go out. So much so that it's beyond their own shyness that pushes them over. It's awesome. Seriously. That was the apostles. You know? I mean, I don't put you on the spot again, Ann. But if Ann was up, she maybe she would say to herself, I don't know what to say, or I don't know, is that fair kind of say? I don't know what to say exactly to strangers, and it's kind of scary, this kind of thing. You don't think the apostles are like that? What do you mean? What? Whoa. They're like this, whoa. And he's pushing them out, and they're like, what do we do? Right? They're like, heal the guy. Why? What? <laughs> heal him? <laughs> you serious? Right? And he's pushing them out. And they would come back, and they'd be like, Ugh. That's right, it's tough work. And you push them out. They'll come back. So notice that the apostles' confidence pivoted on their experiences, not just what Jesus taught them verbally, but what he taught them through his example. What did he say? He didn't just say, learn from me. He said what? Follow me. He said, follow me. Now that's a big deal. Don't just listen to me. Follow me. See what I'm doing here? You see how I love people? You see how I'm not interested in putting them in bondage? That's what my love looks like. I'm trying to set people free. I came to seek people and save. Seek sinners, not those who think they're righteous already. Seek sinners who know they need a Savior. I'm training you to do this same thing. So like the apostles, so much of our training must be experienced for it to become something of substance. Confidence and conviction is something that, while supernaturally imparted by the grace of God, isn't merely learned in the classroom or in a church, as wonderful as this one is. I mean, this is a magnificent place of learning and guidance. But it's not the only way. Nor is it in the case of Jesus' apostles. These are, look, these are things that come as an admixture 
of understanding and experience, conviction, confidence. Um, if you never get in the batter's box, you'll never know if you can hit a home run. You know how a home run's hit because you've watched it on a video screen. Oh, look at Big Pappy. Look at these, his elbows in there and he's twisting his hip and he's all, you understand the mechanics. You can probably tell everybody about the mechanics of how to hit a baseball and all this kind of thing, but you've never actually hit a baseball. Did anybody ever see that movie Goodwill Hunting? I know a lot of I know a lot of Goodwills out there. Goodwill is the main character, a genius, young kid. Like, I'm not saying I know a lot of geniuses, but I'm saying I know a lot of people that are like him, who think they know. But I love the bench scene when Robin Williams leans over and says, "You know, I used I was almost thinking this way, but then I realized you're just a kid. You don't know what love feels like." You don't know what it is to experience this thing. You don't know what it is to experience this thing. You don't know any of this. And some people are like that, even though they're old, physically. They've never stepped out. They're experienced, and so they don't have, they have that fragile kind of faith, that fragile kind of confidence. Their convictions, even, are very fragile. Sometimes you've got to get out of your comfort zone. So these things, confidence, convictions, they come as an admixture of understanding and experience. As I've taught many times in the past, faith must be tested for it to be fully consummated in a person. So as you can imagine, I started thinking an awful lot. I want you to think an awful lot about this idea of follow me. And I put that period in there on purpose just to denote how simple it is. Follow me. There was much more to Jesus' words than simply a physical act. He was calling his apostles, as he has with each of us even, to follow his example. We already got his context. He then sent these men out so that others could follow their example in Christ, and so on throughout human history. That's how it's gone. So following is an experience. Yeah, it's an experience. But that was how he kickstarted the entire early church. He said, I'm going to leave. I'm going to send you the Spirit. I'm going to ordain these 12 for starters. And then they're going to go out and spread it and spread the good news. They're going to continue my good work to seek and to save that which was lost. And there's going to be on-the-job training, OJT. It's not going to be just classroom. There's going to be some following others, Christ in one person becomes a, a beacon of light to another one who's just growing into the grace and knowledge, you see, of God. And, and then that person dies, and the next per this person has matured, and they become. There's a lot of you young people in here, I would say probably 50 and under. Look, I hate to, I hate not, not to be morbid on a Sunday, but some of these old people are going to start dying off. Bill's like, whoa, wait, wait a minute, what? I'm living forever, right? Who's going to take the mantle in this church? Are you waiting for everybody else? Are you still spending all your time and money and effort and whatever on yourself and saying, oh, so-and-so will take care of it? Who's going to take the mantle? Seriously, who's going to take the mantle? You have, I mean, I pick on Bill all the time because he's a tremendous example. Living the, 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 the life. Follow it. 
Seriously, follow it. He's a light. He's shining, sitting there. He's like, yeah, I got him in it. Right? I mean, it kind of is because there's a light right above him. Like, <laughs> but not that kind of light. No, I'm saying you have those people in your midst. Follow them. Have a conversation with them. Take them out for coffee. Bill's like, yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm getting at? This is the nature of it. So I'm saying this to the younger people, the younger crowd now. Grow up a little bit. Start growing up. Don't just think everybody else is going to take care of things. You're not living at home anymore. Mommy and daddy's not here to wipe your nose. You understand? Grow up. And follow Christ in others. Because that's how it goes. And that's one of the things we learned with the apostles. The Jewish leaders, like every unbeliever t- today refused to follow Jesus. And since the Holy Spirit was convicting them, just like He convicts everyone, they were, in effect, calling the Spirit a false guide, a liar. Hence the original statement. Go back to Matthew 21, 31. You see how important this pivot is? We're studying it on purpose because a lot of context is in place at this point in time. And it rattled people. It rattled the twelve, even, when he transferred from propositional to parable format. It rattled them a little bit. And it was okay, because he kept teaching them, and he explained the parables. But he always had a context. Matthew 12, 31, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. What did I say? Oh, I'm dyslexic. I didn't tell you. I think I am a little bit, as odd as that sounds. Sometimes I get my numbers reversed. Reserved. Matthew 12, 31. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven, people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Up here on the board, one last time. The Pharisees knew who Jesus was, knowing He was sent from their God, which means they'd have to call the Spirit who convicted them of who he was, a liar. Now, tying this back to our own lives today, the blasphemous spirit today, similarly, when an unbeliever says to an evangelist's face, you're a liar, it is forgiven them. But if that evangelist just sowed the good seed, a la Matthew 13, 3 and 4, the unbeliever is now accountable to God for rejecting his spirit, a.k.a. the spirit of Christ, Romans 8, 9. And we have... 1 Thessalonians 4.8, for encouragement. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So don't feel bad if they reject you to your face. Just know they did it to Christ. But God will forgive that sin, but not the sin of blasphemy of the Spirit. Not when God, the Holy Spirit, says, you, you see what that person that you, you, you know, you're basically figuratively spitting on right now, they just gave you the gospel. And now I'm telling you it's the truth. And if you tell me I'm a liar, now we have a problem. So just concentrate for a second. I know we're moving quickly here. This gets at the very core of the gospel message that we just spent over a year on. Up here on the board. Facts about Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, whether believed or not, 
are not the issue in salvation, strictly speaking. The issue is a person's heart response to the gospel, which does include those facts. Of course it does. As a result of the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, follow me. And throughout human history, many have said, no, thank you. In effect, we might view a negative response to the convicting ministry of the Spirit of Christ this way. It's just an example. Emancipation and the road to hell. The Jews were like the child that desires to be emancipated from their God-given parents. It's not about understanding who the authority is. That's known. It's about not wanting what God wants for you. Hell is where, you know, spiritually emancipated, quote-unquote, children go. They've chosen this thing for themselves. They said, I know, you know, look, arrogance says this up here on the board. I know you created me, God, but I'd prefer to spend eternity separate from you and your authority. Okay. I'm a God of integrity. I told you you had a free will. If that's your free will, the gavel comes down and you will die in your sins, just like Jesus said you would. Okay. Now, I was reflecting on some of this for the sake of encouragement. Just remember that we are at best merely sowers of the seed. Keep it simple, right? We walk down the aisle in the field, reach in the bag, throw the seed out. <laughs> Stop it! Hey, you got to go. You know. <laughs> Stop goofing around. So this should be encouraging. Hardness of the heart. God will never allow a heart to be hardened until it first understands the gospel. He wouldn't allow it. They have to be able to say no, in other words. It's just a matter of integrity. It is the Spirit's ministry to testify about Jesus and his gospel, John 15, 26. No person will ever be sentenced to hell unless they've first tasted the gift and been enlightened by the Spirit's conviction. That's Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. There's a doctrine in the Bible we might call common grace. Doesn't, I don't care if you call it common grace or not, but many theologians call it common grace, which in a nutshell means that God will, out of integrity to his love and justice, always sow the seed of the gospel in the heart of man and water it too, which is a reference to the Spirit's ministry. So in other words, he's going to throw the seed on the soil. He's going to water the soil. And see what happens. That's a guarantee. And as the parable of the soils goes, not everyone receives it. Many soils don't ever produce any fruit, anything good, which means the, the seed never took. Oh, maybe it took for a little while, but it never really took. The response of the soil is what dictates the final sentence. Up here on the board, I'll give you the New King James of Hebrews 6, 7, and 8. For the earth which drinks in the, in the rain, that often comes upon it and bears herbs, useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessings, blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed. In other words, its destiny is set, whose end is to be burned. This is the analog to the parable of parables in Matthew 13, 22. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. 
unfruitful soil is worthless and burned up, sentenced to hell, a la Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 6, 8. Okay, let's get back. i got to pick a spot here. I can't believe it's quarter past already. Although my clock up here says quarter past eight, so <laughs> we got three hours. <laughs> let's go back to where we started one last time. I, I honestly am surprised you spend this much time, not that my opinion matters, but on Matthew 12, 12 31. Go there, Matthew 12, 31. 21, 31 or 12, 31? 21, 31? I can't, I can't tell. They look the same to me. Matthew 12, 31. Hey, we've been to it so many times, you should know it by now. Sheesh. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven, people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And then shortly afterwards, we know that day, he says in verse uh, 13, 3, and he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. Okay, so you get this context, this idea of Jesus' context. You get the idea of what the, uh, what the apostles that he trained up were up against. You get the idea that he was training them up for even disappointment, for lack of a better term. That you're going to sow the seed and, and not all of it's going to stick. There are going to be some 30, 60, 100 fold, but the rest is going to be all kinds of variations of, you know, conversion, let's say, or lack of conversion, or almost there and then running away, this kind of a thing. Um, there's going to be all indicators that someone's getting close, but it doesn't stick. And that's what he was trying to train them for. Don't be too discouraged because it really is the Spirit's ministry when you get down to it. That there's nothing special about, so to speak, the sower. And there's nothing unique other than that it is the gospel about the seed. So if those things are held constant, it's really about the soil. So understanding the parables. Due to the nature of parables, this is where we're going, remember. This is what happened after that day. Due to the nature of parables being word pictures meant to reveal profound spiritual lessons, it is imperative that you first understand the context of the parable. Speakers, Jesus, audience, culture, cultural norm, excuse me, time, place, and circumstance. So far, this has been the mainstay of our lessons up here on the board. Jesus taught his parables to unexceptional men. That was like an entree into the apostles. The apostles were the primary receivers of the parables, and yet there was absolutely nothing remarkable about them. We ought to be very encouraged by this. Now, I think this is where i got to pick a spot. Um, one thing, let me just go a little bit further, we'll close up. One thing the apostles were was curious. Is that fair to say? Yeah. They were curious. And curious people do what? They ask questions. A perfect example is following Jesus' first presentation of the parable of the soils. Look at Matthew 13, 10. What did they say? Matthew 13, 10. And the disciples came. And this is right after he, before he gave it any explanation. He said the parable of the soils. The first thing they say, hey, the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Huh. Humble people ask questions, being unafraid of admitting they do not know everything. Humble people ask questions, being unafraid of admitting they do not know everything. And here's what I think I'll end with. Arrogance is unteachable. Say that to yourself. 
The next time God the Holy Spirit convicts you of something. The next time you maybe look at a Bill Johnson and you're convicted. And I'm not saying Bill's that type of individual. But the next time the light shines in your life, from wherever corner of your life it may shine from. Other people, you know, when you're reading the Word, God the Holy Spirit's going to convict you. Whenever that light shines in your life, are you humble or are you arrogant? Are you trying to dodge or do you want to keep it simple? What's your immediate response? What's your response to the light? Do you love it? Do you seek it? Do you like it? Do you want it more and more? The apostles were teachable Jews. The arrogant Jews were not. So I guess the beauty about learning from the apostles is that it's the same baseline, isn't it? Um, it's the same baseline, and we call it humility. It's the same baseline that we operate on, even today, that there was nothing really special about them. They just said, um, yeah, we're kind of uneducated. Maybe they said to each other, what is he doing picking us? Like, for real, right? I mean, they were insecure enough to ask, I wonder who the greatest is yet. Maybe they were really saying, I wonder who's the greatest because we're all schleps. I don't know. Don't make that doctrine. Just saying, you know, that would be kind of like the, you know, the thinking, correct? This is the Lord. This is the Messiah. Why is he choosing us? There's like all these highfalutin people on in Jerusalem. Why don't he pick some of them? No, I, I choose you. They had to have had some of those responses. And it was by the very nature of that sort of self-analysis that they were able to openly and frequently ask, yeah, we don't get that. We don't understand that parable. We don't understand why we can't cast out this demon over here. We don't understand this. We don't understand that. We don't understand, you know, whatever. And they said, Peter, of all we're going to get to, I mean, he was just, he's comical. Lord, I will never. I don't know him. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. But they always, you know, like us, and one of the one of the one of the, the hallmarks, if you would, of a believer is that they always come back. That's the true hallmark of a believer. That they always come back. That they are even when they're quote-unquote, astray, even when they do something stupid. Uh, they always come back because they're drawn. They're, they're changed, remember. They have no option. I wrote that on a public thing this week. I have an option. I mean, God, Satan would love for me to quit. He's tried everything. He's tried everything recently even. Try all kinds of crazy stuff to try to make this man quit. It's not going to happen. So I just wrote, hey, I, I just kind of wish they would get the hint. Like in Buzz Off? Like, I'm not quitting. I don't know what the deal is. Cut it out. Take your agents. Shoe fly. Seriously, shoe away. But they don't. They're just, you know, it's like, what are you doing? I'm not quitting. So just get the hint. You know what I mean? And they, the apostles never quit. Ain't that beautiful? So much so that they got killed. That they were martyred. That's a beautiful thing. They never quit. 
So I guess that's what we'll leave uh, this morning's message with. And then uh, as we get into uh, the video, which really speaks to the simple fact that God chose you. He chose every single one of us just the way we are. Amen? All right, let's show this video and we'll go. Brian House, B House is like, booyah. <laughs> Inside joke. All right. Am I mic'd up? Okay, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for this wonderful privilege to gather together, to even laugh together uh, as family in the unity of the faith. Uh, life is short, Father. You've made it so but also profoundly simple and righteous for those willing to humble themselves so that you can impart said righteousness to them so that they might go bear fruit to bring glory to you, Father. What a privilege this is. May we never become familiar with it, but rather embrace it. Embrace it when we see others, others who we may follow in the name of Christ as beacons of light. May we learn to live in such a way for others that our hearts are right before you, that your scales become our concern, that your weights become our concern, that we consider our own self-righteousness rubbish so that we might gain Christ this way. What a privilege it is, Father. We pray for those that are still struggling out there, those that lost or maybe even straying at this time and that they return to you, that they repent in the heart, that they see this freedom that we have even in this moment as we pray to you, Father. We also pray that we each have the strength and the tenacity to go out to a world that just Frankly, Father, oddly enough, doesn't want truth in many cases. That we're not dissuaded when certain soils do not bear fruit. Let us press on. May we be encouraged each by each other's faith, Father. We ask these things as we set forth, along with traveling mercies. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, we do pray. 
Amen. Thank you.